Sir David Omond is visiting professor at King's College London and former director of GCHQ, the UK government's intelligence and security organization. He's author of the recently published book, How Spies Think, 10 Lessons in Intelligence. Sir David Omond, thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure. Well, let's uh, let's begin with the book here. Um, what prompted you to write the book, How Spies Think? I started writing this book after seeing how, first of all, the British Brexit referendum and then the 2016 U.S. presidential election were being reflected in social media. And I was getting increasingly cross at the way that I saw this rising tide of half-truths and distortions trying to persuade us online of what we ought to think and, and want, not to mention some outright uh, falsehoods and deceptions, and not just coming from Russia, uh, aimed at widening divisions in society and increasingly setting us at each other's throats. Well, the book sets up a, a framework that um, that you all used in British intelligence that you maintain is, is useful for all of us as we try to uh, deal with this um, uh, misinformation quite often. Can you take us through, I mean, how, how does uh, someone trained the way that you were uh, approach uh, this sort of information? I've coined an acronym, SEES, S-E-E-S, for the four kinds of output that rational analysis or, or uh, can, can give a decision maker. And the first S in SEES is situational awareness, facts on the ground. What is going on, where, when and where, those sort of questions. That's an essential first step. And of course, you can't always trust the what you see. We have to guard against deception. We have to take into account that some of the information we have is bound to be wrong or it's fragmentary or it's incomplete. But that's the starting point. But facts on their own tell you nothing. It's only when you explain them when you put them in a context that they actually have meaning for us and this can be really quite difficult this is e in the first e in c's the explanation of what you're seeing i mean every defense lawyer knows this here's a simple example the fingerprints of a suspect are found on the fragments of a of a bottle thrown at a police patrol Suspect is in court, the evidence is produced. Now, are the fingerprints uh, evidence that he threw the bottle, or did the mob rushing past his front door simply pick the bottle out of his recycling bin? Two explanations of the same fact. So getting your explanation right is absolutely key. But if you've got a good explanation, then and enough uh, data, then you can estimate how things might uh, evolve. And this is for the decision maker, really what they want to know. It's looking ahead. It's saying, on the basis of these assumptions, this is what we expect to see happening next. And this answers questions that start with why or what for. But whilst you're focused on those first three, situational awareness, explanation and estimation, something totally unexpected, is liable to come and hit you on the back of the head. So I round off the acronym, the final S, uh, with strategic notice. That is giving the decision makers some advance warning of things that might come and disturb them 
dangerous developments uh, in the future. Taken all together, if you have those four outputs, for, then you can, uh, I think, uh, take good evidence-based decisions. Is this at its core of a, a rational process? I mean, it strikes me that one of the things the the folks who are trying to spread misinformation do is try to short circuit that that rational thinking part of our brains. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. I mean, when any of us have a decision to take, there are two different kinds of thought we have to have in our minds. One is the rational analysis that I've just been talking about, and the other is emotional. Why did we want to take the decision? What do we fear and we're trying to avoid by taking a decision? Uh, or indeed not taking uh, a, a decision. And you have to balance those two, the rational and the emotionally uh, driven parts. Both are necessary. We try in the intelligence business to keep the rational stuff neutral, impartial. But we know perfectly well that uh, the elected politicians have a democratic mandate to take a decision they have uh, many considerations in their minds. So that's where you get this, this balance. Now, what's happened, I think, particularly on social media, is that the emotional side has taken over. Stuff is pushed out, not because it's true or likely to be true, but just because it has the right kind of emotional impact on the person who's watching or viewing uh, on the screen. It has that, it has that impact. And so I think it's time to redress the balance. And that's what the book is about. It's about saying whether it's in government or in business or in private life, just think a little more carefully, get the rational analysis right. Uh, and then you'll, you're less likely to fall into some of the traps that are there for the unwary, particularly the magical thinking. I want it to be true. Therefore, uh, it will be true. Mm. Well... No, sadly, that's not how the world works. <laughs> yeah, you know, um, the book is is full of examples uh, from your career of, of using this uh, framework to, to good uh, effect. Can you share with us uh, any particular examples that stand out to you where approaching a problem this way uh, worked out for the best? Well, there's one. I opened the book with one uh, example which I will never forget. I was the uh, person who showed Margaret Thatcher, then Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, showed her intercepts of Argentine naval communications that uh, revealed that the Falkland Islands uh, were about to be invaded by the Argentine junta in 1982. It was a very dramatic moment. The islands are so far away in the South Atlantic that there was no time to send reinforcements. But at least what the intelligence did, it provided the situational awareness, the explanation we could work out from the content of these intercepted messages. And that gave her the forward look, the estimate that by the end of the week, they would be on the island and there was nothing to stop them. Uh, and that gave her time to mobilise to the Royal Navy to put together a task force to send to the South Atlantic to recapture the islands. Uh, and that almost certainly saved her political life. If she'd woken up 
few days after this warning, uh, I think uh, her position would have been very rocky as it was. She could stand up and say, yes, this is a, an appalling act of violence against uh, innocent uh, islanders, but uh, we're already taking steps to recapture them, which, of course, is eventually what happened. But, of course, the fourth uh, element of my model that I mentioned, strategic notice, had been a failure because we hadn't warned sufficiently in advance that this might be one of the possibilities, uh, and therefore we hadn't reinforced the islands in the way that we should have done. Yeah, and it's a really fascinating point of the, uh, I suppose, the, the lessons that you must have learned when things did not go well, when you experienced failure despite your best efforts. Yes, the uh, uh, the book is subtitled... Uh, 10 Lessons in Intelligence. And the first lesson, uh, which is true for everyone, is that our knowledge of the world is always fragmentary, incomplete, and it is sometimes wrong. But if you gather information, if you explain it carefully, then uh, you can predict or estimate how things are likely to turn out. I think the current COVID-19 epidemic, pandemic, illustrates this model really very well. You need the knowledge of the world. You need to know uh, who is being infected, how many people are being uh, admitted to hospital. You need all that data, which is gradually, gradually coming forward. Then you need to explain it uh, in terms of how does the disease actually transmit from one person to another. Um, and then you can produce a good model showing how things uh, are likely to turn out. Had all that been done and had uh, governments been listening to that kind of modelling from the, from the scientists, then probably we wouldn't be in quite the mess we're in now. How do you suppose things are, are different for the, the leadership at, at GCHQ today, having to deal with things like social media and how much more connected folks are than when you were running the organization? Yes, uh, it is. It is. The world has changed. Uh, when I was running uh, the organization, uh, the Google, I think, uh, was, was, was merely a research project. You know, we're talking about the mid-1990s. But we could see coming over the horizon a transformation of the world from analog to digital. And digitization, the ability to turn any form of information, whether it's sound or video, uh, any data can be digitized, turned into numbers and stored and enciphered. The transformation is, is very profound and uh, GTHQ and its partner in the United States, the National Security Agency, have done amazingly well to keep up. In some ways, it assists the intelligence officer because there is more information that can be drawn on. On the other hand, there is so much, uh, the volume of uh, digital data is so enormous that the bad guys can hide much more easily than they could in the past. And by using uh, digital ways of attacking uh, networks that has recently been, un been uncovered in the United States, of course, you can then get inside your adversary 
and gather very large quantities of information. Can you give us some insights into the relationship between GCHQ and the NSA, the the the, the two nations? Do they are the, are there significant differences in in their approaches? Is there a different style in the way that they approach um, spycraft? It's a I've I've got a chapter in the book on that relationship because it's a wonderful example of long term partnership in mutual interest. It wouldn't have survived since uh, after, after the Second World War if both nations hadn't recognized that they could do more together than they could do separately. Uh, and that, of course, with, uh, is particularly the case for the United Kingdom because uh, we're a much smaller country. But nonetheless, we uh, have extremely good people. We've got good access. We've a long tradition of a diverse set of minds trying to solve some of these problems. So together we are stronger than we are individually. Uh, It's based on an extraordinary uh, Second World War experience of sharing. And it's, I think, the only example in the world where two sovereign nations have deliberately decided to pool, put together some of their deepest secrets. And it relies on each regarding the other as completely trustworthy uh, and capable of managing securely those deep secrets. It's undoubtedly saved a great many lives. Recently, it's their work uh, uncovers uh, the activities of terrorists and proliferators and criminal gangs. The Not everything is shared. There are one or two areas where for political reasons uh, the two sides have uh, agreed, no, we won't expect you to share information on that. It's politically sensitive for you. Uh, and we have some areas like that as well. But almost all of it is jointly, uh, jointly acquired and processed. As to culture and attitude, because it's larger, the National Security Agency probably uh, has a better handle on, uh, if you like, volume, but uh, it's maybe a bit less agile because it's so much bigger. Uh, GCHQ is smaller, it can turn direction rather faster, Uh, but both still manage to recruit extremely able people, the sort of uh, unusual minds that can solve problems and devise ways of getting information that uh, the bad guys simply don't know is possible. You mentioned the, the situation that we find ourselves here in the U.S. with the, uh, the recent relevations about the solar winds breach. And there's been a real spectrum of, of reaction in the reporting. Um, you know, some folks, uh, politicians and, and otherwise, others saying, oh, this is a, an act of war. Others saying, oh, this is, this is you know, espionage. Um, you know, please dial down the rhetoric. I'm wondering, what is your response to something like this? Uh, uh, the revelation of such a, a large, uh, broad uh, act of espionage. I'm on the outside, but I'll give you my view, which is very firmly that this has all the hallmarks of a Russian large-scale espionage operation. It's not the first. Back in the end of the 1990s, uh, there was an operation codenamed Moonlight Maze, where the, which is really the first major uh, 
cyber espionage operation known about. And the Russians attacked the U.S. defense establishment pretty comprehensively. And a joint U.S. and and British effort um, managed to uncover it and stop it. But that was, if some of your listeners may remember, that was when the defense secretary had to instruct every member of the Pentagon to change their passwords. Now, Mm. that was an attack through the front door which had not been sufficiently secured because the threat from cyber espionage had not been sufficiently recognised. This latest attack is through the basement. This is a different kind of attack. It's much sneakier. It appears to be rather cleverly uh, devised. Uh, It hasn't got into highly classified networks. The national security damage may not be too severe, probably less severe than the Moonlight Maze, which did penetrate uh, highly classified networks. But it's it's a major act of espionage. It's not an act of war. Um, we spy on people. Uh, the United States spies on its adversaries. Uh, there's no international law prohibiting espionage, and there never will be, because countries will never agree on the definition of what counts as espionage. If, however, it were to be revealed that this attack had been used to plant destructive malware of the kind that we know, the names like NotPetya, WannaCry, or the ransomware attacks that uh, the hospital sector has suffered, if it was that, then it would be extremely serious rather than just being serious. But It's our responsibility as free nations to guard ourselves against espionage by hostile nations. In this occasion, um, the hostile nation got one over the United States. But uh, uh, the the message is you have to be more careful about how you defend your networks. Getting back to the book, um, what do you hope that people take away from it? What do you hope that someone who who reads the book, learns from it? Well, the top-line message would be be much more aware in this digital era as you uh, use social media. Be aware of what is happening to you. You are being emotionally manipulated. And whether it's for the purposes of commercial purposes, advertising uh, that is targeted at you, whether it's political advertising that's targeted at you, or indeed whether it's hostile interference in your democracy targeted by an adversary country. Be aware of that. Uh, Not everything you read is true. And I think that sense of just being more careful, and that leads inevitably into the kind of analysis you need to carry out, the kind of thinking, let's call it just thinking. You just have to be a little more careful how you think in this era. Um, And politicians have to be more responsible about, although they can try and manipulate us uh, emotionally using social media, for example, uh, they shouldn't. They should get back to a much more rational conversation with their voters. Well, the title of the book is How Spies Think, 10 Lessons in Intelligence. Sir David Oman, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure.